Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of several books, including The Management of Savagery. Max, hello. Hello. <laughs> so a lot to discuss in the aftermath of the election. You have Trump refusing to concede and making some key personnel moves. Also some major personnel moves with the Biden transition that tell us what is to come. Let's talk first about Trump. You had Mike Pompeo joining him in refusing to concede. Pompeo saying that uh, there will be a smooth transition to the second Trump term. Uh, is the State Department currently preparing to engage with the Biden transition team? And if not, at what point does a delay hamper a smooth transition or pose a risk to national security? There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right, we're, we're ready. What is your reaction to what Trump is doing right now and the anxiety that is growing on the liberal side of a coup attempt, essentially? Well, I'm not I'm not terribly shocked by Trump's behavior, and I'll explain why. But Pompeo's comments during a State Department briefing, uh, which were completely um I mean, his, his comments were not necessarily a response to a direct question, and it seemed like something he had scripted and was determined to say that there will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration uh, were somewhat remarkable. It sh they showed how much the Republican Party belongs to Donald Trump, how important Donald Trump's uh, blessing is to Mike Pompeo's future political ambitions, which could be a 2024 presidential run, but also how uh, U.S. elections have actually polarized the country and not necessarily been particularly good for what, whatever's left of U.S. democracy. And that has a lot to do with U.S. the kind of American exceptionalist and imperialist mentality embodied by figures like Mike Pompeo and his predecessor, Nikki's, Nikki Haley, and their predecessors from the Democratic Party. Um, Mike Pompeo has is currently denouncing Venezuela's election before it's even held, calling it fraudulent before the election is even held, and has put pressure on opposition parties not to participate in order to delegitimize the democratic institutions of Venezuela. This was precisely this is for the National Assembly elections coming up this December. This was precisely what uh, the State Department under Nikki Haley did in 2018 in Venezuela. Um, the year before, Nikki Haley's State Department recognized an election clearly stolen by Juan Orlando Hernandez, the right-wing neoliberal leader of Honduras. Uh, even the Organization of American States concluded that there were severe voter irregularities, but the U.S. has a hand-picked uh, figure to lead Honduras, who represents the legacy of the coup that was initiated in 2009 and blessed by then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Um, and of course we have Bolivia last year where Mike Pompeo's State Department alleged fraud when no such fraud existed and helped launch a coup there. So you have the State Department under Mike Pompeo uh, basically carrying out the same kind of undemocratic operation that Donald Trump is accused of doing domestically in the U.S. It's obvious that uh, Donald Trump's promise to bring the wars home has been fulfilled and that these are chickens coming home to roost. 
Um, and it's not just Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley or Donald Trump, as I mentioned. Before, there was a Trump administration, the Obama administration under Hillary Clinton, and then John Kerry participated in several coups, uh, regime change operations. I mentioned Honduras, Libya. They attempted a dirty war in Syria and failed there. Ukraine, the United States, under the um, State Department of John Kerry, overthrew a democratically elected leader in Ukraine and called it a revolution of dignity. So there's a long record of the um, of U.S. administrations delegitimizing democracy in other countries through regime change operations, which deliberately polarize societies abroad. They do so by design, and they demonize the leaders of those countries, whether they are elected democratically or not, in order to get their way. All of these tactics are being put on display at home. So as I've said, they may be deeply undemocratic. Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump's behavior appears to be pretty undemocratic because they don't seem to have the votes to allege fraud, but it's distinctly American. And we have to understand why Donald Trump is doing this. I think he's doing this as a response to what Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and their supporters proceeded to do to him once he was democratically elected, which was to delegitimize his election through the narrative and the intelligence intrigue of Russiagate, which obviously alleged that Donald Trump was actually the product of Russian meddling and Russian collusion. They burdened his administration and his first four years, probably his last four years, with uh, nonstop threats of prosecution. Then there was an impeachment hearing for uh, failing to arm the Ukrainian military, which was the product and the legacy of the regime change operation, the deeply undemocratic regime change operation that the Obama administration ran in Ukraine. So these zero-sum tactics and delegitimization of democratic institutions, uh, they didn't start with Donald Trump. They were escalated. These tactics were, were really brought into domestic U.S. life by the uh, Obama administration's former officials and especially Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump is now seeking revenge in an extremely petty fashion. And I think these kinds of politics are here to stay, this zero sum game where elections are actually seen and politics itself is seen as kind of a permanent regime change operation with different factions of the establishment vying for power like ruthless mafias. And it's possible that Trump's current personnel changes, the firing of Mark Esper, there's rumors that he wants to get rid of Gina Haspel at CIA. It's possible that that plays into this. Uh, Haspel reportedly has been resisting the declassification of some intelligence that Trump believes would clear him or help clear him on Russia and show even more that that investigation was a fraud. Although the problem with Trump is that I don't want to make assumptions because, for example, what if firing Esper is really a prelude to taking some even more aggressive stance towards Iran. So it's, it's, it's hard to say, but there are things happening that show that perhaps that battle between Trump and the national security state via Russiagate is still ongoing with his, with his personnel changes after the election. Yeah, it reminds me of the scene in uh, the comedy City Slickers where Billy Crystal's character says to the grizzled old cowboy, uh, Jack Palance's character, uh, you know, it's a good thing nobody died today. 
and Jack Palance looks out into the distance and says, day ain't over yet. Um, you know, Donald Trump losing the election with the impending uh, renewal of the JCPOA, the, the Iran deal, will it increase by an enormous degree the pressure on Donald Trump from Netanyahu and his friends in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, as well as, you know, the domestic Israel lobby that helped elect him in the first place, represented by Sheldon Adelson, who contributed something like $150 million to Republican Senate or to Republican congressional candidates. So let's not um, say that, you know, well, Trump didn't start a war. So that's one good thing in his favor. Uh, it's not, the administration isn't over yet. But where I think this is going ultimately will be to a very rough transition of power to a Biden-Harris administration where 80 to 90 percent of the Republican electorate, the Republican base that's been cultivated by Trump, believes that Biden stole the election and is not a legitimate president. And that base will be weaponized through Tea Party style tactics by Republican business interests and Mitch McConnell in order to completely tie Biden's hands and uh, grind his agenda to a halt, just to put that administration under siege the same way Donald Trump was put under siege by the Democrats' so-called resistance. Yes, unfortunately, the Democrats have laid down the playbook for what they're now facing now from Trump with Trump's conspiracy theories and rejection of of uh, the election without any evidence. With the Democrats did that with Russiagate, for example, there was a poll of Democratic voters that showed that more than two thirds believe that Russia tampered with the election results back in 2016. So this conspiratorial mindset is not just confined to the Republican side, it's there on the Democratic side with blue and on as well. <laughs> exactly, I couldn't have said it any better. So let me ask you about, you mentioned Venezuela earlier, and one of the stark choices that Biden will face is does he want to continue key Trump administration policies like the regime change effort in Venezuela? And a member of the Biden transition oversight team is Paula Garcia Tufro. Uh, she served in the National Security Council under Obama, and now she is on the Biden team as well. And you had an exchange with her back in August 2019 on the CGTN show, The Heat, where you confronted her for basically laying the template for the Trump administration's coup attempt in Venezuela when under Obama, the US government declared Venezuela to be a national security threat. And you asked her about this and her answer, or I should say her non-answer is very illuminating. This is the result of the Obama administration's designation of Venezuela as a national security threat in 2015. I want to ask Paula, because you were in the Obama administration, in what way was a Venezuela a threat to U.S. national security? How does Venezuela threaten my security or the security of, um, of American citizens? Or was this not a tool to bring us to the crisis that we're in? Uh, to ratchet up Venezuela's economic crisis and harm ordinary civilians. 
So just if, if I may, uh, go ahead and, and directly uh, respond to that. So uh, again, I would say from the Obama administration standpoint, the policy was very much one of support for the democratic movement in Venezuela. Which um, which one would that be? Intended to be the one that staged a military coup. The, the, Venezuela the movement that staged Max, a military coup. Please let her finish firstly. Okay. You ask her a specific question. She's trying to answer. So I would just say, again, the policy was very much a support for democracy, support for democratic movement in Venezuela. It is never one to go after the Venezuelan people. I don't believe, certainly I know to be the case under the Obama administration, and I don't believe it to be the case today. How was Venezuela a national security threat to the United States? That was the specific language of this designation. In what way? Yeah, just to uh, clarify for everyone watching, uh, Paula Garcia Tufro is one of a uh, number of figures, maybe 10 figures listed on the National Security Council agency review team by the Biden-Harris administration. So if you go to uh, buildbackbetter.com, which is the Biden transition website and named for their slogan, which also happens to have been the slogan of Boris Johnson's election campaign and, um, and like the World Economic Forum has, has this campaign called Build Back Better very corporate, very center-right, um, you'll see the personnel who are reviewing the incoming staff for each agency. And it's a fascinating look at the sensibility or the kind of ethos of a Biden administration. I mean, you'll see represented heavily uh, corporate America, you know, Citibank, Uber, Amazon, uh, you will see many, many, when you look at the foreign policy side of the, the State Department review team, the intelligence community review team, the NSC review team, the Defense Department review team, you'll just see a who's who of arms industry funded think tanks like the Center for Strategic and International Studies or which, which you know, sort of a center right think tank or a think tank that really exists as a kind of um, uh, place where Democratic uh, figures from the Obama State Department and Defense Department cooled their heels during the Trump era, the Center for New American Security. I mean, these are funded by the uh, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, the companies that are spawning death all over the world, particularly in places like Yemen. And uh, you'll get kind of the what, what I would call the backbenchers. Uh, people like Paula Garcia Tufro. She was at the Atlantic Council, another arms industry funded and foreign funded think tank. And she helped uh, at the NSC and the Obama administration conceive the first round of sanctions applied to Venezuela in 2015 on obviously bogus grounds that Venezuela was a national security threat. And you can see she was unable to answer the question, how is Venezuela a national security threat? How does that country threaten our security? Because there is no answer. It was just a justification for beginning a blockade which has been escalated under the Trump administration. And during the Trump era, Paula Garcia Tufro has been seen with Juan Guaido's retinue um, at the UN, for example, in New York. She appears to be a some sort of advisor to the coup administration, which has been defeated in Venezuela. So she will have some sort of role in a Biden administration, along with so many other figures, it's, there's not, not enough time to name them, who have uh, similar views on Venezuela. One interesting character is Kelly Magsiman, who is the Vice President of National Security at the Center for American Progress, 
uh, which is Nira Tandon's pay-for-play operation, another arms industry-funded think tank close to the Democratic Party. Uh, Maximin, you know, she, I think she was involved in, in Iraq during the occupation, uh, something to do, I, I would, I would double-check that. But she, she worked for Elliot Abrams, uh, who's, who's in charge of Venezuela and Iran policy in the Trump administration, who is an Iran-Contra felon, um, who's been involved in all sorts of heinous activity in Central America. And when Ilhan Omar roasted Elliot Abrams during his confirmation hearings ahead of the Venezuelan coup that he was that the US was launching, or it was actually like right at the beginning of it, Maximin rushed to Elliot Abrams' defense and declared, I worked for Elliot Abrams as a civil servant. He's a fierce advocate for human rights. Yes, the, the man who helped inspire the El Mosote massacre in El Salvador is a fierce advocate for human rights and democracy. Yes, he made serious professional mistakes and was held accountable. I'm a liberal, but I'm also fair. We have a lot to, of work to do together in Venezuela. We share goals. So we share goals. I mean, absolutely revealing of who these people are and the continuity that we will uh, likely experience between a Trump State Department and a Biden-Harris State Department. I want to mention one other figure um, that's listed on this group of backbenchers on the advisory teams. It's Dana Strau from another arms industry-funded think tank, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which was actually funded, uh, sorry, founded in the 1980s out of APAC. It was originally the think tank for the key arm of the Israel lobby in Washington. And she helped oversee a congressional panel on Syria, which uh, basically was looking at where do we go now after the moderate rebels and the dirty war failed, um, Damascus held on, what do we do? And she conceived, uh, along with this panel of other uh, bipartisan neocon uh, interventionists, a strategy to occupy one-third of Syria, which is currently under occupation through the Kurdish YPG, Syrian Democratic Forces, and the U.S. military, which is where Syria's breadbasket lies. And she said that the U.S., this is her exact words, the U.S. owned one-third of Syria. The U.S. owned that one-third. She also called for harsh sanctions like the Caesar sanctions, which are have been implement, implemented this year and are causing um, bread shortages and fuel shortages amid a pandemic. And that one third of Syria is the resource rich, it's the economic powerhouse of Syria. So where the hydrocarbons are, which obviously is very much in the public debate here in Washington these days, as well as the agricultural powerhouse. But we argued that it wasn't just about this one third of Syrian territory that the U.S. military and our military presence owned, both to fight ISIS and also as leverage for affecting the, the overall political process for the broader Syrian conflict. There were three other areas of leverage. One is political and diplomatic isolation of the Assad regime. So holding the line on diplomatic isolation, preventing embassies from going back into Damascus. Two is the economic sanctions architecture. So some of this is part of the maximum pressure campaign of the Trump administration on Iran, but there's a whole suite of both executive and congressional sanctions on Syria and Bashar al-Assad, both for human rights abuses in Syria and to the backers of Assad for their activities on support in support of him in Syria. And three was reconstruction aid. So the United States remains the overall largest single donor of humanitarian aid to Syrians both inside Syria and refugees outside of Syria. And there was some stabilization assistance 
in the part of Syria that was liberated from ISIS and controlled via the Syrian Democratic Forces in northern eastern Syria. The rest of Syria, though, is, is rubble. And what the Russians want and what Assad wants is economic reconstruction. Um, and that is something that the United States can basically hold a card on via the international financial institutions and our cooperation with the Europeans. So we argued that absent behavioral changes by the Assad regime, we should hold the line on preventing reconstruction aid and technical expertise from going back into Syria. And uh, this is the person who will go from the Syria study group to uh, helping devise a Biden State Department and Biden policy on Syria. Uh, another figure on that panel, I believe, Nicholas Harris, who's at CNAS, the other Democratic arms industry funded think tank, actually called for using hunger as a weapon of war in Syria uh, for withholding the wheat in that northeastern part of Syria from the rest of Syria in order to cause bread shortages, in order to put pressure on um, Syria for regime change. I mean, I can name so many other figures. There's there's uh, someone named Jung Pak from the Brookings Institute, another arms industry funded think tank who uh, is a North Korea specialist, came out of the CIA. She's on the intelligence community advisory team. And she's also called for uh, using harsh sanctions against North Korea in order to um, extract, to, to accomplish regime change, which just seems absolutely futile. And wasn't one of the Obama administration's biggest failures was the strategic policy strategy that she apparently presided over. So there's just so many of these figures, and we haven't even gotten to the A-team yet. I mean, this is the backbench. Well, let's talk about some of the rumored A-team members. Susan Rice is rumored to be the incoming Secretary of State. You recently on Twitter posted a clip of her bragging that when Obama was deliberating over whether to bomb Syria in August 2013 over the alleged chemical attack in Ghouta, an allegation that we later learned uh, U.S. officials, including James Clapper, doubted and said that we lack the evidence of. And Cy Hirsch has done so much reporting on this, showing that U.S. intelligence officials actually found that the that Al Qaeda in Syria had obtained sarin, that the sarin that was used in Ghouta was not the one in the Syrian government stockpile and a bunch of other evidence as well. But Susan Rice bragged that despite all this, she was the only one in the room advocating that the U.S. bomb Syria because, she said, Obama was unlikely to get congressional approval. And he came to me and I said, Mr. President, I think you got to strike. You, you cannot wait for Congress. Um, and you can't wait for Congress because we have made very explicit what our intentions are. And I actually quoted Vice President Biden, who likes to say, big countries don't bluff. And I also recalled, you know, Rwanda and the, uh, the fact that if, the, if this escalated, this could be his Rwanda. But the biggest point I made and the most passionate aspect of my argument was, I don't think Congress is going to give you the authority. Well, regardless of what happened in East Ghouta in 2013, what Rice is saying is that the American people and their representatives should not have had a say in whether to go to war and that the administration should have rushed to judgment. And she's boasting on stage with NBC's Andrea Mitchell at Georgetown University of how she was the only person in a meeting of White House officials to take this undemocratic, warlike position. So she's clearly proud of it. She's using it to promote herself. 
and uh, you know her justification is 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 childlike. It's infantile uh, that she felt guilty about Rwanda, and that uh, big armies, big big countries have to stand by their word. Which she quotes Biden on. So, I mean, this kind of juvenile rationale for bombing the crap out of Syria. If you actually watch the entire video, she even entertains the possibility of bombing Iran uh, because Iran intervenes to protect Damascus. She actually entertains that possibility and appears somewhat willing to take on Iran. And this is someone who helped concoct the phony rationale for the U.S. to intervene militarily in Libya uh, based on a phony Al Jazeera report of Gaddafi's troops uh, using Viagra and rape as a weapon of war. It was completely made up by a Libyan uh, opposition doctor uh, allied with the Islamist Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. And Susan Rice proceeded to introduce this phony lie at the UN to justify the policy that she advocated internally alongside uh, fellow uh, interventionists, Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power. And we see what happened to Libya. It's still in civil war. It's still a catastrophe. This is the legacy of Susan Rice. And then she proceeds to advocate for the same policy in Syria, which shows she's learned nothing. Then six years later, she boasts about it on stage at Georgetown. She has learned nothing from her failures. And it's the same with all of the other likely foreign policy principles who are being put forward in the Obama administration. So Susan Rice may not make it through a confirmation process with a Republican-held Senate because of her past with Benghazi, which was kind of like this pseudo-scandal used to cover up the real scandal of the national destruction of Libya and the destabilization of an entire region in Africa. Uh, she may not make it through because of her role in unmasking Trump officials. Uh, they may oppose her uh, you know, in lockstep. And that would leave Tony Blinken, Anthony Blinken, as the uh, likely Secretary of State. And this is someone who is just is at least as hawkish as Susan Rice, who was a key advocate for the dirty war on Syria that helped fuel the worst refugee crisis since World War II. Uh, and then after he left the administration, he teamed up with the woman who is likely going to control the Pentagon under Biden-Harris, Michelle Flournoy, at WestEx Advisors, which basically helped advise Silicon Valley on getting contracts with the Pentagon and uh, also worked with basically other revolving door interests involving the arms industry. Tony Blob, uh, Blinken is the quintessential blob creature, Russia gator, uh, seeking to arm the Azov battalion in Ukraine and fuel the proxy war in Ukraine's east. And he's also deeply invested, as Susan Rice is, in advancing the interests of the Israel lobby. That's why he said that Biden will literally do nothing to twist Israel's arm to stop seizing land in the West Bank, expanding settlements. He will not withhold any aid to Israel, which was increased to a record degree during the Obama administration. Um, so it looks like a return to the Obama era and all with all of the failed figures at the State Department. Uh, I could imagine someone at the CIA replacing Gina Haspel like Avril Haines, who uh, was, I think, like an assistant to see what was she uh like assistant uh, 
yeah, fe first she was a deputy director at the CIA, the first female one, and she was an advocate for Gina Haspel's confirmation because Avril Haines was involved in helping to make sure that CIA torturers would not be prosecuted. And Gina Haspel, of course, was deeply involved in the torture campaigns of the CIA. So this is uh, an extension I, I could see of the Trump CIA, which obviously Trump wants to remove Gina Haspel right now. And you know there are so many other figures who come from the blob and the Obama administration who will be in key positions. Uh, again, I could go on for another hour, but the idea that the that the left can pressure Biden on foreign policy seems like a deluded fantasy and that the only option here is to oppose their objectives at every stop. Well, this is where I think the role of the progressives in Congress will be interesting because this time when they faced pressure to oppose you know, regime change abroad, it could, if effective, if it works, it could make a difference. It's not as if you know Trump has to listen to Bernie Sanders or AOC. But now, if Bernie Sanders or, or AOC or other members of the squad could be pressured, I wonder if that would have an impact on Biden. Certainly, it could get more media attention. And I'm reminded of back in the early days of the Trump coup in Venezuela, you personally asked AOC if she opposes it. And she basically brushed you off. And when asked about it publicly, she basically said that she was going to defer to the Democratic Party leadership, which ultimately supported Trump's coup attempt. Now, though, if this could be made a public issue and progressives could be pressured, I wonder, maybe I'm being optimistic, but I wonder if we'll see a different dynamic. I, I have seen AOC draw a red line on the appointment of Rahm Emanuel, someone who would only play a role on domestic policy. Uh, and she said nothing about foreign policy so far. I've heard very little from anyone with any uh, proximity to power or the Biden administration about uh, opposing these picks or at least challenging them in public. Uh, it was really revealing to see uh, on election day, Matt Duss, who was one of Bernie Sanders' top foreign policy advisors, send his love and support to Tony Blinken, who we just discussed right now. Um, this was a guy who was touted on the cover of the nation for supposedly taking on the blob, sending his love to the quintessential blob creature and strength on election day. So, uh, so far, you know, these picks are proceeding uh, without just untrammeled, without any opposition. What I can say, you know, speaking for ourselves, is that I think we've played uh, an important role along with, you know, other alternative media outlets and with uh, organizers and activists in elucidating and illustrating the terrible consequences of regime change and puncturing the narrative that was uh, spread during the Arab, so-called Arab Spring, that these regime change operations would be different than the one in Iraq, that these were actually about humanitarian protection, that these were about spreading democracy. And I think uh, many people, including AOC, understand that you know the R2P doctrine that Samantha Power and Susan Rice and Hillary Clinton have advanced is a false justification for destabilizing wars of regime change. 
that are absolutely destructive to humanity. The question is whether they'll actually um, stand up and pay the political price because when you oppose these regime change operations, you're stepping on the third rail as you know, you and I have discovered over these past few years during the Trump era, you're not just, you're not just opposing bombing campaigns, you're opposing uh, sanctions, which get very little discussion in Congress. You're opposing hybrid war, you're opposing information war, which plays out through the US press. And so when you go after the, the hack pack in Washington, the Josh Rogans, they're gonna come for you and call you a Russian agent or whatever they want to do whatever they did to Tulsi Gabbard. So there is a, a, a serious price and AOC is not going to pay that price for opposing Rahm Emanuel, who is despised by the majority, I would say a majority of Chicagoans and is most notorious for helping to cover up the murder of Laquan McDonald by police, the killing of Laquan McDonald by police in order to get reelection. Um, so we just have to keep illustrating the consequences of regime change and keep educating the progressive public and to build alliances where they exist. But uh, they're, 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 we're not going to be listened to by a Biden administration. That's apparent from the agency review teams. That's the problem. Suffering civilians abroad, whether they're in Gaza or whether they're in Syria or Venezuela, any target of U.S. proxy wars and regime change, they have no domestic political lobby in the U.S. to advocate for, for them. And anybody who tries to raise their plight is then essentially smeared as an agent of some enemy foreign government, including the governments that the U.S. is trying to overthrow. But let me ask you about the people in the Obama camp, because you talk about this being Obama 2.0. There were people inside the Obama administration who were not neocons, who do oppose sanctions on Syria, for example, now. I don't even want to name their names because I don't want to possibly jeopardize their chances of getting back in. But do you think, is there any hope that any of these people who don't share the liberal interventionist neocon agenda, do you think there's any chance of any of them coming back? The only thing I, I, I would say, just because I don't want to eat my words, is that Biden has a lot more latitude to do things like roll back sanctions on Syria, which are just so obviously only exclusively ruining the lives of the civilian population. And not that I think they should, but they are not scathing the government or the security services in any real way. And I saw that when I was there, I spoke to you know anti-Assad businessmen, I spoke to uh, common people, I saw what was going on there and it's just obvious. And you know, because of what, what Russiagate did in addition to being this obvious partisan attempt to delegitimize Donald Trump was as Stephen Cohen said, it criminalized diplomacy. It made it impossible for Donald Trump or his administration to accomplish anything with Russia. And it necessitated these pathetic displays of uh, Eric Trump after Donald Trump bombed Syria the first time after the Khan Sheikhoun operation uh, declaring this proves my father is not in bed with Russia because he's attacking Russia's ally in Syria. So Biden has the kind of Nixon goes to China latitude to actually start rolling back some of these policies, the same in Venezuela. And you can see one of the think tanks in Washington, which is trying to have a voice in a Biden administration, will likely get it, which plays an uh, insidious role in Washington by posing as a human rights group and posing as progressive, known as WOLA. I think it's called the Washington Organization on Latin America. 
Uh, they've been advising Biden to just do targeted sanctions on Venezuela and roll back the sanctions on diesel, which affect the civilian population. So, and and you, it seems like you have some inside knowledge of people who are talking about changing policy on Syria a little bit. Um, but I, I can't say that this will take place. There's also going to be enormous countervailing pressure from the neoconservative, neo liberal elements, which are already deeply embedded in a Biden administration. Um, I mean, on Syria, I noticed uh, Charles Lister, you know, the British hack who was brought in with with Gulf money to vet all of the so-called moderate rebels, uh, celebrating and toasting martinis on the night of Biden's victory. And, and, And now he's offering advice at the Gulf funded Middle East Institute for Biden on Syria. So uh, there's going to be an internal battle. And, you know, if the Obama administration was any guide, the the more militaristic and interventionist elements will uh, win out. All right. I want to try to end on a positive note. One of the few glimmers of hope that I saw in a Biden administration and one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I was rooting for a Biden victory, a Trump loss is the Iran deal, a return to the Iran deal. If Biden can follow through on that. And also if Biden can follow through on his pledge to end support for the Saudi war on Yemen, which I don't think is a guarantee, but it's at least a pledge that he made. Do you think that those steps could have a, not just a, a positive impact in and of themselves, but a broader positive impact in sort of encouraging diplomacy and rec- moving away from the confrontational aggressive posture that Trump has pursued over these last four years? Well, the Iran deal still exists. It's still intact. Um, it, all, all that is required, as far as I know, is just the U.S. rejoining its European allies who are desperate to do trade with Iran, but which were too cowardly to get their backs up and honor their agreement and take on Donald Trump and Israel. So that's all that, all that would be required. But it's important to remember what the Iran deal was how it was conceived or, or, and why it was conceived. It was conceived to contain Iran, uh, to weaken Iran's, uh, I, I don't want to use the term regional ambitions, but to prevent Iran from becoming the regional player that it is destined to be. And there is a faction in Iran which is incipient, uh, allied with the IRGC, which would be known in Washington as hardliners, but I mean, you could more accurately say is just more close to the revolutionary tradition of Iran, and they could be they could come to power, and if that if they do come to power, then you'll see a Biden administration actually take on Iran, and the Iran deal becomes sort of void. Uh, the Trump administration and Netanyahu have deliberately weakened uh, Rouhani and his reformist administration, and many Iranians want a change. Um, and they also do not approve of Rouhani's economic policies, which they consider uh, overly centrist or neoliberal. So uh, I wouldn't just uh, look at everything through a vac uh, through a purely Washingtonian or U.S. perspective. Um, there are forces. Uh, the situation in Iran is changing rapidly and has changed rapidly over the last four years, and a lot of Iranians feel differently than they did when the Iran deal was signed. Uh, And they have good reason also to see the US as uh, a dishonest 
broker that negotiates in bad faith, uh, that they if they sign back on to the Iran deal, that it can be rescinded again during another administration after, you know, a week Biden tenure, and uh, they're left back where they started before, uh, without planning or reorganizing their economy for the reality of a multipolar world in which the U.S. is left. Uh, in the distance. Well, that's a tough one, because if, as you say, the Iran deal was aimed at containing Iran's, you know, regional ambitions, its regional power, it's a huge country with a lot of influence, then to uh, assert that right, assert to be, assert its right to be a, a regional power, then that would mean braving continued U.S. sanctions that are very, very crippling. So those who advocate that in Iran are in a tough position, I imagine, because to pursue the path of pure independence and not have to succumb to the dictates of U.S. hegemony at all, that means they're going to have to endure, at least for a while, the brutality of U.S. sanctions. That's true. Uh, Iran has been enduring the brutality of U.S. sanctions for decades. Of course, they're at a much more uh, that they've been escalated enormously under Donald Trump, but they have what they call a resistance economy. They have ports which are able to export goods. They have ways around the sanctions. They're building a close economic alliance with China, uh, which is going to help Iran prosper over the coming decade. Um, it's obviously going to take a while to come into effect. And, and there's no doubt that U.S. sanctions have done enormous damage to Iranian, civilian, uh, Iranian civilians, um, their ability to uh, conduct daily business, uh, being kicked out of the uh, international financial system. It has a huge effect, but they're also accustomed to it. And uh, the, the, the other fact is that when you obtain nuclear weapons or nuclear capacity, breakout capacity, as North Korea has with intercontinental ballistic missiles, that's the end of... Uh, any plans for a U.S. or Western invasion. That is the ultimate deterrent. And it's the deterrent that Libya gave up when it thought that if it agreed to some kind of containment deal, uh, that it could unilaterally disarm and that enabled NATO's in, uh, invasion in 2011. Um, that's why North Korea rushed to obtain nuclear capacity and, nu and its uh, ability to deter the West led to Donald Trump's negotiations directly with Pyongyang. So this is all some this is this is all part of Iran's calculation. And so it's not so simple to just simply return to the Iran deal and have everything be okay. And those of us who actually favor a more peaceful, multipolar world might want to reconsider uh, the implications of an Iran deal at this point. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it one way or the other, but I'm just offering other uh, streams of thought that I think reflect how many Iranians and many people around the world feel about the U.S. trying to uh, use diplomacy as a tool of containment. Fair enough. That's a lot to think about. Well, we'll leave it there. Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of The Management of Savagery. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you.